0: Dot com slash Lincoln Odu. Modern management made simple. Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone out there that's listening. March and April, top 1.5 million downloads a month, and I think we'll see an even better May and a future going forward. Please share this podcast and what we're doing at the Lincoln Project with your friends and your family and anybody you think might be interested. You are the engine that makes this show grow, and I cannot say thank you enough. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Bryn Tamahill, a senior defense analyst and author. She served in the United States Navy for over a decade, achieving the rank of lieutenant commander. She graduated from the Naval Academy with a bachelor's in computer science, as well as from the Air Force Institute of Technology with a master's in operations research. She's written for a variety of outlets, including the New York Times, Huffington Post, and Slate. Her latest book is American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Bryn, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to
0: talk about first about your book that came out about a year ago. It explains the trajectory of how we got to our current moment as a nation and the threats we continue to face Uh, you give particular attention to what you see are the characteristics of fascism and how they're applicable to the gop base today so let's start with what you see in particular that mirrors fascism in the republican party today
1: so in the book i looked at a literature view of what a number of different scholars on fascism over the past 50 years have said to characterize it. And I went through and found the things that the majority of each of them said were a characteristic. And that ended up being about 13 things. And, you know, some of the things that you see in particular are, you know, the first one that I list is misogyny and sexual anxiety. And we can see that getting worse particularly against LGBT people. A lot of these bills and laws coming out, you know, don't say gay kind of stuff, stuff meant to pressure people into staying in the closet, teachers, students, what have you. That very much feeds into it. Um, Another big piece of it is that there's one leader from which all political power flows. And we know right now Donald Trump is a kingmaker for the Republican Party in a way that I can't say any Republican president has been in the past. Another really good example is that fascism needs a mythos of a great and glorious past that was lost when cultural elites and people in the cities and others took away from a nation, and that fascism is trying to restore that.
0: Something like make America great again, perhaps?
1: Yeah, pretty much exactly that. And the book says it. You know, Germany talks about, you know, being the Third Reich. We see Hungary's attempts to go back to some better past they generally they look at the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So there's always this yearning to go backwards.
0: Also, I guess Mussolini and the Roman Empire would be another one. It's always interesting, let's work backwards a little bit there from this mythical past, right? First of all, it always is mythical. Second, even in the times in which these folks are speaking of, they weren't that great for the people living in them. You know, in this country 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, right? There are massive parts of the population disenfranchised either legally or whatever the case might be. You know, you can say, well, oh yeah, you know, under Frederick the Great, Germany was a great power. But like, how many people in the, you know, 14th century or whatever were living great lives? And so it's always this sort of gauzy rearview mirror of history that almost never existed.
1: And yeah, exactly. And if you asked some of these Trump supporters when America was last great, they would probably point to some time in the 50s, maybe around 1950, 51, 52, 53, you know, sometime before Brown versus Board of Education, right? Before the civil rights movement, before women's liberation, before birth control, before Roe versus Wade, before lesbians and gays and transgender people had some level of societal acceptance. But if you ask women and minorities and LGBT people who were there in the 50s, that wasn't a particularly great time for them. And the life expectancy in the 50s wasn't as high as it is today, even though it's going backwards now. But there is this kind of mythy gauze wrapped around what life in the 50s was like and ignoring the parts that were some of the nastier parts of U.S. history.
0: It's always funny when they talk about the early 50s because Eisenhower didn't take office until 1953. So you got two whole years of the 50s where Harry S. Truman is president, which most folks don't remember, that, you know, until Eisenhower was president and passed the Federal Highway Act, most of the country was still, you know, a lot of dirt roads, right? Like Route 66 was like a really high level, you know, way of transiting the American West. We had come out of World War II a national power, but infrastructure wise, we still had a lot to contend with, you know, marginal tax rate. Was it 90 percent for hire or something like that? you know, and then they also overlook the fact that Eisenhower, you know, sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock to desegregate the schools right after Brown versus Board of Education that, you know, to your point, like polio was a real thing. But it's also one of those things where, okay, so my parents were born in the late 40s, so they probably remember the, you know, the 50s and things were fine. But like it wasn't like gold was falling as raindrops and dollar bills grew on trees.
1: And part of it was that. At that time, one thing that was better was that you could have a family on a single income. But at that time, minimum wage had more buying power and unions were common. That's one thing that people look at and wish we had, but they're not willing to do the things that it would take to go back towards that.
0: So there's this funhouse rearview mirror of history. Then there's the misogyny and the sort of male dominated piece of this, which is always ironic because the people who are most held up as this like paragon of masculinity. And I use that in the context of how believers see it, not necessarily how I see it. Like Adolf Hitler, not a particularly masculine guy. Joseph Stalin, not a particularly masculine guy. Donald Trump, not a particularly masculine guy. For the most part, these are not people who you'd see as like, oh my gosh, right? Like the paragon of some mythological Superman. So there's the past, and then there's this misogynistic piece this dear leader piece, too. But I want to ask you about that because, you know, of the people that we've named, there's always been the leader, right? But populist leader is a relatively new phenomenon, just given the fact that we were kings, queens, emperors, whatever, for so long. But there doesn't seem to be a follow-on, right? They seem to be one and done a lot of times. Maybe there's a child or children, but for these sorts of single leaders, first, they often lead their nations and themselves to ruin which means that whatever's left over, somebody new has to come in and clean up.
1: So yeah, generally in the past, fascist dictatorships have been one and done, like you said. But this has built a movement. The book leads with the quote by Barack Obama that, you know, Trump isn't the disease, he's a symptom. And that the Republican Party, Donald Trump is an expression of the id of the GOP base. They're what they always wanted. They wanted somebody who would fight stupid culture wars. They wanted somebody who would say the kinds of things you would expect Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh to say, things that were not particularly measured nor particularly educated. And my fear is that Trumpism is going to outlive Trump. Uh, And we'd see someone like DeSantis end up in power behind him and just continue that legacy. I could easily see Orban's legacy continuing in Hungary, considering how strong grip on power the Fidesz party has.
0: My question would be, if you see people like the new Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, or one of the leading contenders for the Republican nomination in Arizona, Kerry Lake, they're actually outstripping Trumpism. And my guess is that he'll follow their lead to catch up.
1: Trump is an opportunist the same way Orban is an opportunist. They see what the base of a particular party wants and they try and give it to them. Trump started out as kind of wishy-washy on LGBT stuff, and then it got made clear by his white evangelical base, no, you need to take a hard line on that. And he kind of went along with that. But when he sees other people going further and doing well with that kind of message, yeah, absolutely, he's going to pick up on it and go beyond the big lie. And especially as long as there's absolutely no consequences to becoming more and more extreme.
0: Well, and I think that's what we're seeing too, right? Which is, again, as someone who grew up in the Republican Party, as the listeners have heard far too many times, and worked in the party for 20-ish years, is that you know, folks that espouse that stuff were part of the coalition, but were typically outliers. You knew the evangelicals didn't have anywhere else to go, so you gave them some sop from a policy perspective I believe you were ever going to go for but you were cynical enough to say I need these people on my side now they're in charge that part of that wing of the party is in charge and not only that there's the recent stories out from Tim Alberta and the Atlantic about the evangelical church or this recent report out of the Southern Baptist Convention about the cover up of horrific sexual abuse is that they are just oftentimes institutionally as corrupt and hypocritical as Donald Trump is. So we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that they're willing to go in lockstep wherever he leads
1: them. That touches on something that was in my book that I kind of noted and I keep noting again, which is back in like 1964, the Republican Party, for the most part, came as close as it ever had to embracing the radicals. But in the end, Richard Nixon and Barry Goldwater decided that they were going to keep the John Birch Society at arm's length, right, which were the crazy radicals, anti-communists of the time. In 1994, though, what's really interesting is that Barry Goldwater, not too long before his death and after he left the Senate, you know, said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that it, it was a mistake to ever let them inside the tent. You can't talk to these people. I should know, I've tried. And now the Republican Party has left a strategy of trying to win hearts and minds sometime in the 2000s, right? When they couldn't get any legislation through the House and Senate and Bush was wrapped up in other things and he wasn't, you know, pushing the bits of legislation that they wanted desperately as part of their cultural war. And they decided, well, going after 2008, we're not going to bother winning hearts and minds or making a convincing argument. We're just going to gerrymander and suppress our way to winning at the state level. And then by 2020, it had gone to and we're just going to overturn state level election results if we want to anyway, to get what we want, to get the America we want. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is that the base of the GOP, the white evangelicals and religious rights section of it, gave up on democracy a long time ago and decided that there was no value in and of democracy itself, that power was the primary thing. And over time, that's kind of become the motto is we are in a war for power. And what are they going to do with that power? Well, they're going to remake America in a way that reflects their worldviews, but no longer reflects the worldviews of the majority of America. And that's extraordinarily dangerous. Right. Well, and
0: I, I think your point about, you know, the state legislative stuff and the gerrymandering, remember, this didn't occur in a vacuum. The normal counterweight would have been a healthy and attentive Democratic Party also saying, wait a second, we should pay attention to what's going on here.
1: Absolutely. Democrats got caught asleep at the wheel. They never really had a counter narrative to the Tea Party. They just hoped that the Republican Party would rid itself of the extreme elements on its own, and the Republican Party wasn't up to that task. Democrats never really figured out that people largely don't care about policy statements, right? If you look at the polling numbers, Democrats typically have positions on issues that people favor that are more popular, but that really doesn't matter. People are going by their gut feeling on things. And I think the, the best reflection of that was the fact that the 2020 Republican Party platform was our platform and our policies are whatever Donald Trump say they are at this instant.
0: That's right. And that's the whole point. I mean, you can put together a 78 page policy plan on something and the only people that are going to care are the media and opposition researchers who will pick out what it is they need and utilize it. But let me ask you this. I mean, we see this, you know, people might call us Cassandras, right? boys and girls who cried wolf, but like every time we make a prediction, it tends to come true. So at some point, I hope somebody starts believing us. Why don't more Americans see what's happening from your perspective throughout your career, all the way up through now and writing this book? Why don't you believe that more people get it? To me,
1: it's sitting there in front of us. It's not even in front of us. It's upon us. So there's a number of reasons. The biggest one that I point out in the book is that there is this sense of American exceptionalism, that we are this great shining city on a hill ordained by God to march ever forward in glorious, you know, triumph of humanity and freedom. And people don't want to look at the uglier sides of American history. They don't want to admit that we can go backwards in some particularly nasty ways. You know, we can talk all we want about, you know, what we did during World War II, but we also, you know, put 400,000 Japanese and Americans in internment camps and that we never formally overturned it until just a couple of years ago in Korematsu versus United States. And the other thing is, is people don't want to believe that the GOP would go that far or that they would take the next step or the next step. My parents are a couple of Trump voters and, you know, trying to explain to them why this is really, really Bad for me and your grandkids just really didn't quite register with them. And as I spend every day being accused of horrific crimes against children simply for the fact because I'm part of the LGBT community, there are real consequences to this that are very, very frightening and people don't like to think about those.
0: And there's a, the other side of a coin, which I think is equally concerning and disappointing, which is there's a large group of people, which Charles Packer calls Smart America, which I think believe that they're educated, they've done pretty well, they want their kids to go to the right schools, they want their kids to have the right careers. And what that becomes is rather than saying, wait, 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 this isn't right, there's a sort of resource hoarding mindset that takes over, which is, do I really want to stand up? Do I really want to risk everything I have? Do I really want to get in the way of this when it's not my problem, it doesn't matter anyway, it's not that bad? Right. I want my kid to go to Stanford or I want my kid to go to Radcliffe or whatever it is. And if I get up and start making noise, I could get in trouble. And do I really want to get in trouble? And then that just starts the sort of conspiracy of silence that leads to nothing but horrific, horrific outcomes.
1: And that's one of the big takeaways that that I have in the book when I talk about places that have fallen into what's known as competitive authoritarianism is that life in unfree societies, non democratic societies, for the majority, is boring and normal. It doesn't affect them on a day-to-day basis. As long as you don't belong to some group of people that the government really, really doesn't like, and as long as you don't get too loud about your opposition to the government or what it's doing, nothing happens. Now, you have absolutely no say in what the government does, and if the government does something to you, you have no redress. But for the vast majority of people, it just doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if quality of life keeps dropping little by little by little because, you know, the autocrat and his cronies are siphoning off billions of dollars the way Putin and the oligarchs did. And you can see that in the Sochi Olympics. If you remember how much they spent on that and how much of it disappeared down rat holes.
0: Well, and how you see the, the Russian military today.
1: Yeah, there's significant corruption and graft within the Russian military and readiness is far below what they hoped.
0: So it's that whole idea of I don't want to do anything now because if I do something, it might be worse. But as you know, Bryn, when you do nothing, it's always worse. Trying to avoid the worst outcome will always lead you to it.
1: So Russia is a really good example of where the kind of the end state for competitive authoritarianism ends up. And there's a Russian saying, and I love, is today is an average day. Worse than yesterday, better than tomorrow.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And only the Russians would see the world that way, probably.
1: Well, unfortunately, towards the tail end of the Trump administration, that's how I kind of felt about where things were going in the U.S. Is that, you know, opening my Twitter feed and checking my news feed, it was, oh, God, what now? You know, damage report. And we get numb to it.
0: That's the other part, too, is is we think about, you know, your steps of fascism or your points of fascism is that sort of being inured to the noise. Think about it like if you had a metaphorical hearing aid, right, you just turn it down so you don't have to hear it. Or you just disappear into a video game or to Netflix or whatever it is, because we have so much information in so many ways to entertain ourselves that like if we don't want to pay attention to the outside world, short of work, school or whatever it is, that you don't really have to.
1: Absolutely. There's so many ways to distract yourself. And here's the thing is that you want to distract yourself, especially when you look every time you you know go on Twitter or the news or what have you. And it's just pure horror eventually you either go numb, you start ignoring it, or you go down a rabbit hole. And my way of dealing with what was going on was to write a book. I've described it as part of the grieving process for my country.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just remember after the 2016 election, like I was in a very dark place for like three or four months because I was like, oh my God, like we really did it. Right. I don't know if you've ever seen, it's a terrible movie and it's old, but Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston, we're in a very Charlton Heston way, right? You see the Statue of Liberty on the beach and he goes, damn you all to hell, you did it. You really did it. You know, And that's how I felt. And then I had this one glimmer of hope, having been lucky enough to work on two presidential inaugurations, like the pageantry and everything else. I'm like, okay, maybe he'll get it. Maybe he'll get it. Maybe he'll get it. Then he opened his mouth and I'm like, well, here we go. And then so much of it too is because it's all based on one individual's personality governance, the rules, law, you know, we've made it probably too difficult to find fault in a president legally, right? Because so many Justice Department decisions and nobody really wants to take on the president. I mean, we do have a mechanism impeachment, but you also had the Republican Party, many of its members in the United States Senate, current and former, who knew what a bad guy this was, who knew what he had done, whether or not it was in Ukraine or in January 6th was wrong. And they're like, eh, it's okay with me.
1: Like I said, they see themselves in a war for power. The ends justify the means. Behind the scenes, when you talk to Republicans or people who are close to them, yeah, they, most of them knew what Trump was, that there were a few true believers out there, but most of them were willing to go along because obtaining power to reshape the country the way they wanted to for their base to get reelected was always the most important thing for them. And that's kind of terrifying because our system was not designed to handle that. The founders, when they wrote the Constitution, wrote U.S. law, always assumed that the parties would both act in something resembling good faith, but it was never meant to handle one side deciding we're going to seize power and we are no longer going to act in good faith. And then you've got hard and soft guardrails of democracy, and our soft guardrails completely failed. And the hard guardrails were pushed right to the limit of what they could tolerate after the 2020 election.
0: So think about this. In a couple of months, maybe even a month, it'll be seven years since Donald Trump descended the escalator, right? It's hard to believe and the effect that it's had on the entire country, whether or not that's active or passive, conscious or unconscious. A year after your book comes out, where do you see us?
1: So the last chapter of the book talks about a number of things that could be done and should be done to pull us back from the brink, to ensure that we don't get this close to the end of the American democratic experiment. And it also forecasts that if we do nothing, that eventually the authoritarians will win. If we continue business as usual, the institutional advantages that the GOP has assures that eventually they will be able to seize permanent power and there will be nothing to stop them. And they will have free reign to do whatever they want to enrich themselves, their cronies, to rewrite the American social order. And this is going to be terrifying. And some of the things I talked about were things like passing legislation to shore up the electoral system, shore up voting rights, prosecutions of people who committed crimes or involved in crimes during January 6th.
0: We're 0 for 3 so far.
1: Yeah. The other one that I talked about, which I mentioned, well, this would work, but it probably would eventually backfire and it's probably not going to happen was, okay, well, expand the court because so many seats got basically stolen that we have a completely unbalanced court that's taking us down a very dark and very unpopular path with the American public. And no, that didn't happen either. So all the things that were necessary to prevent us from sliding into authoritarianism have not happened. And the window to do that is effectively closed. You know, I mapped out just a few days ago what it would take. And basically, you'd have to have Democrats hanging on to the House and Senate, win all five toss-up Senate races, get a 52-48 majority, scrap the filibuster, replace one of the conservative justices between now and 2025 pass all the legislation that needs to be passed, and then pray that the Republican Party doesn't either expand the court or overturn all the laws that Democrats passed to ensure that you can't steal elections, right? There are so many black swan events in what I just described, and it requires such a dedicated will to press on to save democracy, no matter how much howling there is from the other side, that it's a vanishingly small chance that we pull ourselves out of this.
0: Well, and I mean, you know, just to say this no small amount of frustration on my end when the morning that we're recording this, it's announced that the January 6th committee is going to hold a grand total of a whopping six hearings on what happened that day, which seems to me, Bren, to be about the bare minimum. I guess they could have just done one. But from my perspective, they should have done three a week starting on January 6th through November, keep Republicans answering questions about that, bring people to justice who were there whether or not they're elected officials or senior political types, because if it's just going to be the men and women who storm the Capitol itself, that's not going to get us where we need to be. There's no accountability. There's no reconciliation, right? It's just like, no, you did this and you got away with it. And to your point, Democrats, as narrow as their majorities have been, they are
1: the party in power. And here we are. You know, and from what I'm told, Mitch McConnell, if he thinks he can pull it off, if he does a whip count, if they hold the trifecta in 2025, absolutely, Mitch McConnell will pull the trigger and the filibuster and oh, vote sure. for a nationwide ban on abortion because that's what the base wants.
0: First of all, when it comes to Mitch McConnell, whatever the worst outcome is, just accept that that's what it is, because to your point, it's just about power. And I think this is one of the other things, too, that we shouldn't discount because you have mentioned it a couple of times, which is for the Republican Party nowadays, power is the unifying thing. It is the unifying principle of the party. And it is very difficult to beat a well organized, well resourced, relentlessly aggressive organization that has got one thing on its mind, and that's it. Like the game we knew is gone. And Republicans created it, they're playing it. And, you know, too many of us are going, well, what do we do now?
1: And unfortunately, I'm working on my next book. Tentatively titled, It Will Happen Here. And (laughs) it explores exactly what you're asking is well, where do we go from here? What happens? And surprisingly, there's a finite number of outcomes. Some of these scenarios, you could see more than one outcome. We could see the U.S. descend into two Americas where you have red states and blue states. And then eventually the courts overturn states' rights and you see everything turn into urbanism and then you see violence and then you see attempts at. Soft or hard secession. But when you get down to it, there's really only four or five basic states for the U.S. to exist in in a post democratic world. None of them are good.
0: Right. No. And um, obviously, that's a take on Sinclair Lewis's 1935. It can't happen here, which, if you have not read it, it absolutely is worth revisiting. And I read it a few years ago with my nerdy highlighter. And uh, I think I've got a copy of it here somewhere.
1: I'm glad I'm not the only one that puts highlighter in books.
0: Are you kidding? Oh, my God, Bren, you should see my library. My wife is like, are you kidding me? All right. Well, listen, before we let you get out of here, where can everybody find your work and where can we find you online?
1: So you can find my works at transgresspress.org. If you want to buy the book in hard copy or electronic copy, you could do it there. We're going to have a uh, audiobook version coming out sometime this summer. Uh, You can also find it on amazon.com. If you want to interact with me on political matters, you can look me up at Bryn Tannehill on Twitter. Instagram's not as good. That's mostly just pictures of huskies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, we always need more dog pictures. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Bryn, I want to thank you for joining me today and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.